Welcome to Artelligence, the podcast of art news, art in America, and Art Market Monitor. I'm Marion Maneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art world. Valerie Cassell Oliver is the Sydney and Francis Lewis family curator of modern and contemporary art at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. She's been in that position for almost four years. Before that, she'd been a curator in Houston for 16 years. Those two southern cities are relevant because she just launched a new show called The Dirty South, Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and The Sonic Impulse. Valerie, it's a pleasure to have you. The South has got something to say, you quote Andre 3000 as saying. Could you tell us a little bit more about the origins of the show? The South has got a lot to say, and it's been saying it for a long time. Uh, So the exhibition began, you mentioned that I worked for 16 years in Houston. And so this project really has its seeds sown there. And being in Houston, which is arguably one of the five epicenters of Southern hip hop, uh, it was really of interest to me to see that call and response between the visual artists and the musicians uh, at the time. And the fact that the rise of Southern hip hop really gave a new sense of pride um, to younger generations of being Southern. It was, it was a mantle that they were embracing. They were starting to embrace their Southerness just the way those musicians were embracing the neighborhoods and the landscape and and the things that they have been taught, ideas and ways of looking, uh, as well as the sort of history of the black body in the South. So that gave rise to this project. And uh, as you said, when I came to the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, which was in July of 2017, given the fact that this is an encyclopedic museum, it gave an opportunity to frame this in a much, much larger way. And so this exhibition really celebrates 100 years of that call and response between visual artists and musicians. So you were originally planning this as a show when you were in Houston and given the opportunity to draw from both the collection in Virginia and you borrowed a, a number of works from all over, you decided you could make it into, sort of dilate it out into a broader uh, story? Absolutely, absolutely. And as you know, Richmond has such a deep history A lot of people stop at the Civil War, but um, this Commonwealth was founded in 1619. So just a few years ago, we celebrated 400 years of the Commonwealth. So when you really look at the South and you look at the African and African-American presence in the South, it really goes back to 1619. Um, It really predates much of what we understand as the beginnings in say New York City or in, in, in terms of the Dutch settlement, uh, we really do have the outposts of the English Empire right here in um, in the area of Williamsburg, not too far away from here. And, and I want to get back to that uh, because uh, of how important the um, Monument Avenue in Richmond, which is the site of a number of uh, important post-Civil uh, War uh, monuments and statues that last year became a locus of a lot of the debate about how we uh, memorialize that. And more importantly, I want to 
talk to you a little bit about going forward, the projects uh, uh, there. But first, I, I, I want to hear more about the show because I think that's uh, uh, terribly interesting, it, it, especially the focus on it being Southern. Is it is it because this is a distinctively Southern thing, this call and response? You have a lot of... Um, that's for lack of a better term, it's called folk art or outsider art, but it's really art made by people who aren't necessarily trained as artists, as well as alongside self-conscious artists or recognized artists, along with a great deal of material culture, uh, um, you know, either uh, things people wear, but also things that they, they adapt from, you know, uh, 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 pieces of popular culture or commerce. I believe you commissioned a, um, a car for the show, and I think it sort of leads off the show, right? It's a custom car. Could you tell us a little bit about both the car and then the emphasis on material culture? Absolutely, yes. We had commissioned um, Richard Fiend Jones, who is known as International Jones uh, in the music world, uh, to create a slab. And a slab is, it comes out of Houston, its origins in Houston, it's an urban art culture, and it's taking old cars, which oftentimes were given to uh, the young drivers in the family to get around, but it was in a way their attempt to beautify these old cars and customize them so that they would feel a sense of pride in driving them. And so that turned into uh, a massive culture that spread quickly across the South, which of course is car culture driven. Um, you don't have the sort of pedestrian uh, sensibility that one would have in the East Coast. So very much like the West Coast with the hydraulics and the cars with the hip hop, you have that very much at play, starting in Houston, spreading to Atlanta, Alabama, all across the South, all the way through Miami. So uh, Richard Bean Jones uh, has created a slab for us, which is an acronym for slow, loud, and banging. And it's because that's what you did in Houston to pass time. You would drive and you would drive slowly so that everyone could see your car. And of course you had an amazing sound system. So hence the loud and the banging, you know, where the car literally vibrates with the bass. So uh, Richard is, and we're, we're actually expecting that car tomorrow morning. So we're really excited to see it. And, and will that Car will join the collection at the VMFA? It is a commissioned work, and we are really thinking long and hard about whether we really do have the storage facility to, to take it on or whether we will see it as a way to uh, promote the show even further. But the show has legs, so it will travel. So we have a little while to think about what to do with the slab. I'm glad you brought that that up because I was gonna I was gonna ask later, but why don't we get to get that out of the way? There are plans for the show to travel. Absolutely, Crystal Bridges uh, in Arkansas signed up very early on to the tour, and uh, we are looking at a, a West venue in the West. We don't have things signed on the dotted line, and then another Southern venue. So it'll 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 be around for a good year or more. If, 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 I, if I know the museum schedule, the three or four places will take a solid year or more to get uh, cycled th through. Absolutely. Yeah. So looking through December of 2022 uh, for it to close. So take me through the show itself. It's divided into three parts, landscape, religion, and the black body. Um, uh, is that sort of a... a 
an argument or is it just three aspects of the way uh, art and culture interact? Well, it was really drawn from looking at hip hop videos and seeing the preponderance of things. So one of the things you see in a consistent basis is the landscape, whether it's the natural landscape, whether it's the man-made landscape, there's always a reference to place and site uh, and the South as a place and as a site. Uh, there's a reference to ways of thinking. So, and that way of thinking, those sort of philosophical thoughts and how they really manifest in the sacred and the secular. So it's not simply religion, it's philosophical thought processes. So there are ideas about uh, the space between, you know, the physical world and the spiritual world. There's ideas around um, uh, syncretic religious practices. There are ideas around Christianity and uh, the sort of duality of self, the good self, the bad self, uh, understanding the hereafter, whether the hereafter is uh, a hereafter in a Christian sensibility or an ability to transport oneself, to extend oneself uh, and to be back into a physical space. So you really do have those things both in sort of a Christian or a sacred sensibility, and then you also have it within the profane, whether you define profane as you know the blues or hip hop, uh, but you do see it in both. And uh, it's very interesting too that most of the artists in the exhibition have some connections to music itself. They're either musicians, they either play instruments, but there is really a wonderful confluence between manifesting things that are expressive in a very static way. And you see that a lot uh, within that secondary section, which is philosophical thought. The last one is the physical body itself, the black body as a retention of history, as a holder of traditions, also as a site of trauma, uh, a space of regenerative uh, energies. Uh, but you have also all of that whole legacy um, that is, um, both, um, it, it, it frames the black body. The South, you can't have the South, you can't have an African-American South if you don't talk about the history of the body in this region and in this area. You know, you talk about music and Southern cu culture and, and, and black culture, but it always seems to me that if America has a pervasive culture at this point in time, it is based in African-American culture because of the importance of music and everything else that goes with it, material culture and so, so forth. And so uh, I, I get that this is grounded in the South, but from your description and what I've read about the show, it feels like it's very much getting at a kind of... Um, not background music, but like a baseline to American culture, that this is the kind of rhythm that is always there. You you might talk about a separate Southern or even a white culture, but that would in some ways be more isolated than this pervasive cu culture that seems to me connects the whole, as you just said, American culture. Absolutely. Well, I am making an argument for that. I am saying that if you have blues or jazz as the American original art form, what is the visual equivalent to that? You know, we don't really look always in our backyard to understand the tributaries toward 
um, um, modernism, but you can't have modernism uh, without the backyard of, of, of the South. And uh, you don't have a South without black culture. And so it is this understanding that black culture is the origins uh, when you think about an authentic American language. Uh, it does happen in the South. It's seated in the South. And anything that, unless you've come from Africa or the Caribbean or from other parts of the world, uh, if you're black in America, your origins begin in the African-American South. It belongs in the South. Uh, migration is really uh, the East, the West, uh, the North is the African-American South. It's the diaspora of the African-American South. And that culture and those traditions migrated uh, outward as well. Well, the, that whole Northern movement, both uh, uh, up the Mississippi into Chicago and the rest of the, the Midwest, but also to New York and out to uh, uh, Oakland and uh, you know uh, San Francisco and the, the rest of the West Coast. I mean, the, the, uh, you're absolutely right. The, the, the lineage of America American culture comes through the South and is carried by, so importantly, by African Americans in this very distinctively American way. But you just had a show a, a couple of years ago uh, uh, that sort of was had some of the similar themes about looking for American modernism in folk art and quilts and these things that were very much the work of. Um, uh, ordinary people in their in, in environment. Uh, and and it seems to me that's sort of part of the same argument, maybe it's part of the foundation for where 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 you were going with this sort of, you know, superseding argument uh, uh, about uh, culture. Absolutely. Where does high art fit with all, all uh, of this? Because you have um, in, in the show, there's an Alma Thomas painting, there's works by a number of uh, uh, artists, uh, that are, you know, very much considered high, high art. So is that part of sort of showing the interaction or just showing it as a, um, uh, you know, a juxtaposition? Well, there's a confluence, right? I mean, I think artists, um, we make those distinctions and, and we frame these categories. Uh, however, I think there is a place where um, there is an existence of that sort of uh, spiritual and creative uh, intellectualism that isn't framed through the academy. And so you do have artists who are academically trained. You have a lot of artists who are not academically trained. And the fact that they are in conversation with each other is really important. Um, I think I think there's a Beverly Buchanan exhibition which is currently on view and some of the notes that was written by some of the drawings or some of the watercolors talk about um, her looking toward the South, her looking toward the artists uh, who are not academically trained as really being part and parcel of the same trajectory. They're all getting at the same thing. They're all trying to go to the same place. And so I'm, I'm trying to um, really uh, break that hierarchy and place everyone in conversation uh, together rather than saying, you know, there's folk art, there's, uh, there's uh, all of it is, uh, all, each and every one of them are working in their way to contribute 
to a larger conversation, which I think is quite beautiful. People like Jack Wooden uh, is oftentimes not seen uh, or, or even discussed uh, in terms of the South, which is where he's from. He's from Bessemer, Alabama. Well, you think about that, you think Sun Ra is from Bessemer, Alabama, and you think even further, you think Thornton Dial is from Bessemer, Alabama. So it is that level of triangulation, even though we're always thinking of these three people as separate and apart in their own um, media or genre or discipline. But if you triangulate them, they're all getting at the same thing. So, so that what is that thing? It's I assume it's something you kind of have to. You're doing a phenomenology uh, of it more than you are a, a, a actually describing it. You're trying to show us the way it shows up in these different places without sort of saying this is the thing that's uh, motivating them. These are the expressions of it and the differing expressions. Right, because when you begin to. Uh, when you began to frame a certain narrative, the reality is there's no monolith. You know, there are multiple. It's such a complex um, framing, and people come at it from. I don't want to name the thing, right? I, the thing is the thing that it is. So I, I don't want to sound obtuse. I don't want to sound ambiguous. I think it is the sensibility of self. It is the way that one sees the world is really, and how one manifests that in the physical space, in a physical plane. Um, so it is a certain level of sightedness, and it's how one uh, repositions that. How does one take the expressive and expend, you know, expel it outward into a physical space? Um, so you look at the work, you look at the work of Benny Andrews, you could look at the work of uh, Joe Overstreet, who's also featured in this exhibition. You can look at the work of Jason Moran, who's also in this exhibition, of, um, of people like uh, Thornton Dahl, who I mentioned earlier. I think it is a certain expressiveness, um, a gift that's been given that uh, is in turn being uh, manifested in a physical way or in a sonic way. And that's really what I'm trying to get at, this sort of overlap, but the fact that they're all in dialogue together. So that's the thing I'm curious to hear about. Uh, you know, among your materials, you have this beautiful uh, shot of a large array of speakers that's just sort of domineering. And, and even in silence, looking at the photograph of it, you can almost feel the, the vibrations coming off of these spe speakers. And it makes me wonder how is the how's the music present in this show i mean i can see how the high art i can see how the uh, uh folk art and material culture all comes together and can be displayed and you can you know certainly write wall text around it but how do you get the music into the the show itself well it's an evocation of music uh in many ways there are some overlapping sounds we'll have the music of sister gertrude morgan uh the piece uh, that you um uh, described was a piece by Nadine Robinson uh, called Theme um, Coronation Oregonan. And in that work, it is um, overlaying of sound. So there's uh, Handel's Messiah, which is playing in a choral way. There are the uh, distorted sounds of the um, protests in Birmingham in which um, protesters were uh, beaten, uh, where dogs were uh, set upon the protesters. So you hear uh, the distorted sounds of the growls, you hear the distorted sounds of the water being um, uh, set upon the protesters. So that is 
more of a sound collage. Um, there's a beautiful Jason Moran set, which is Slug Saloon, um, uh, which of course is the famed uh, space in Greenwich Village, which is arguably built after the juke joint. Uh, so you do have sounds permeating the space. Uh, Allison, Janae Hamilton, uh, Harwasissa work, uh, is there at the very entrance, along with um, the sound of um, Paul Stephen Benjamin's Summer Breeze, which is Billie Holiday and Jill Scott, um, the stanza of Swinging in the Southern Breeze from um, the uh, Strange Fruit, um, the, the amazing Strange Fruit um, uh, song. So those sounds sort of permeate the space. Um, and whereas not every room is amplified with sound, it is that sound that carries through uh, until the very end. And the exhibition itself ends with Love is the Message, The Message is Death by Arthur Jaffa, uh, which of course is built around um, uh, a song by um, Kanye West. So it is all, it's all in there uh, stewing, but the sound is sort of wafting and permeating and bringing you from one space to the next. And, and it ends in a, I'm assuming some sort of like enclosed space where you can watch, I can't remember, it's about seven, eight minutes, the, the Arthur Jaffa uh, piece. I believe it's a little more than seven minutes. I would say up to nine minutes. But long enough for someone who's gone through a long show like this to actually have a moment. It's a it's a very affecting piece, and to I, I'm I don't want to design your show for you, but I can imagine being in an enclosed space where you are really uh, sort of uh, immersed in that that piece as a as a, a final sort of uh, crescendo to what you've described uh, as a, a show. Um, I, I believe, or in the description, there also seem to be Wonderkammer uh, in the show. Is it, Are there several of them, or is it just one uh, uh, cabinet? One massive cabinet of wonder. I call it the cabinet of wonder. And uh, there we have what we call the power objects. Uh, there's stage wear. There's the CeeLo Green um, suit, the flower suit that he wore on the X Factor. Uh, we have a stage wear by James Brown. We have guitars by Chuck Berry, um, by Bo Diddley. Uh, we have the horn of Ornette Coleman, sheet music by Sun Ra. But we also have tribute jars by the Eugenes. We also have work by Robert Pruitt, his glass slippers work. Um, Arliss Walton, we have um, uh, small figurines and also um, bottles, which were painted by uh, Moses Tolliver. So it's a real mixture of material culture, stage wear, uh, things I like to call power objects because they were touched by the artist. The artist uh, put their spirit and energy through these instruments. Um, and then tunics by Dick Griffin, who was part of the Sun Ra Orchestra. So it is, uh, it is where all of these elements come together. Uh, and then within the same room, we have work by Jack Whitten and William H. Johnson and uh, a younger artist, uh, Robert Hodge, uh, called Tap Dance, which is a beautiful piece, um, as well as Jimmy Sedeth, uh, his guitar players uh, are also featured in that room. You mentioned power objects, and that makes me think of those uh, the power figures uh, that you often see that have you know uh, a, both a ritual role, but just uh, also a, a cultural you know repository uh, uh, role and all. And it, and it makes so much sense, especially when you you think of the guitars. I, I think 
I think what you describe, a famous guitar like Chuck Berry's as a power object, you're not, I'm not going to be able to see it uh, another way after that. Well, it's true. And then Freeman Vines, how can I forget Freeman Vines, who is a guitar maker and a musician himself. Uh, he has done exceptional work and a Music Maker Society has had him in conversation with a number of artists, but he does talk about those um, guitars that he creates and he creates from different material, scraps of material that comes from different places people give to him. And uh, he had a very moving story about um, this black walnut um, uh, material that came from a tree, uh, of which there was a known lynching. And when he began to carve from that walnut that the energy that had been stored in that tree, he said it was palpable. I mean, you could feel, you could feel the anguish, you could feel the trauma coming out of the tree that was instilled in the material itself, the raw material itself. And he said, you know, after he made that guitar, he said there were times that he wouldn't even want to be in the same space. If it were nighttime, he wouldn't want to be in the same space uh, with that guitar. And the sound that it, it emanated once he finished it, he said it just didn't, you know, he said it was, you could feel the energy trapped in that, in that, that material. So they truly are power objects, you know. Well, let's talk about that a little more because what you just described sounds eerily similar to what we've just been through as a country over the last year from last summer with George Floyd's murder to the um, conviction just a few weeks ago and, you know, layered over it, the pandemic and the other political issues. And now as things are opening up and there has been this I don't want to call it an expiation, but at least some sort of catharsis with um, uh, uh, the, the conviction, you are opening up this show that, from everything you've described, seems not unlike what you you just described, the, that black walnut uh, tree becoming a guitar. As, as The show sounds like an, a celebration of this interaction and culture and the vibrancy and all, but it's appearing at a time of anguish and trauma, how do you see those two sort of um, flows interacting as the show opens and as people come to experience it? Do you want them to see this as a celebration? Do you want them to see this as something more um, ambivalent? Do you want to see it as a dialectic where, you know, one needs to feel the anguish to also feel the exaltation? Well, I mean, that has been the reality of black bodies in this country. It has been both. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. There's no way um, to frame it um, that even with and, and the interesting thing about George Floyd, who is from Houston, is that he uh, was known as Big Floyd, that he played uh, and worked with. Uh, people like uh, DJ Screw, um, and he's on a couple of his tapes. Um, so he was known to that world, and uh, and so interesting that he would be the sort of face, uh, unfortunately, of this brutal crime and uh, the call for justice, and a justice that wasn't just an American uh, press for uh, justice, but one that that that, as you know, spawned to be very global. Uh, because everyone has um, everyone has this within their culture, this desire and need to suppress, 
a press in order um, for there to be uh, a lift on the other side. Um, so all that to say that I think that has been part and parcel of the America, that black American experience in this country. Um, it isn't new, unfortunately. It is a, it is a, a circular reality and I hope that that circular reality is really a spiral in which every time we come back to a sort of central point we find ourselves in a position uh, to to gain a little more footing so that at some point this won't be our reality anymore so the show is really more or less um, the ebb and flow of that it is both, as you say, it is, it's a dialectical. It's both the pain, but it's also the celebration. It's the, it's the, it's the pain and it's also the ecstasy of it all. Um, so no one sits in trauma, no one wants to be defined by trauma, but it is a part of the world and it is a part of the, the arc and the history of black bodies in this, in this country and particularly in the South. So let's talk about the spiral upward because uh, that's a good both image and, and, and idea. Um, so R Richmond is not at all immune to everywhere else in the United States that's gone through um, this past year. And a lot of that has been focused on uh, Monument Avenue, uh, which is this is not a, a new thing. It's been a continual issue uh, uh, in Richmond and and uh, throughout America for uh, a number of years. But but it all came to a head, and there's been a dismantling of a number of the monuments, and there's a project to reimagine Monument a Avenue. Um, I'm just more curious as as a curator and involved in very much all of these ideas of of uh, memorialization, representation public, uh, 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 you know, uh, connection between art and uh, the, the society, uh, just to give us a little bit of sense of how you're experiencing it, what you see happening uh, uh, in Richmond. Is, is, is this something that, that will increase that upward spiral? I'm hoping that it does. You know, I moved here in July of 2017, and even though I'm from Houston, I'm from Texas, uh, the, the, I did not experience the, the level of celebration of the Confederacy, if you will, than I did when I moved to Richmond, which is, you know, it's to be expected. This was the capital of the Confederacy. And Monument Avenue was a planned community. It was planned by uh, the city, it was planned by the state, and it was with the help of the, the daughters of the Confederacy. So it was very much uh, designed to be a, uh, a tourist attraction. It was designed to be the jewel, the crown jewel of, of remembering and memorializing those who died heroically as Confederate soldiers. And so, as you min made mention earlier, I mean, this was post-Civil um, War, and it was also denoting an end to Reconstruction. So in many ways, it was framing the new hierarchy of the South. And, uh, and so, whereas it's a celebration for uh, members of some communities, it was also uh, symbolizing oppression for other communities, particularly communities who are not white. Uh, and when I say not white, I mean black, Jewish, Latino, anything other than Anglo-Saxon white. 
Um, so it was seen as a point of trepidation, and it was seen as something that uh, was shameful for some people in the community. Um, so fast forward to 2020, as you said, the death of George Floyd and this, this, this swell of energy to, to really create new narratives. Well, I would like to kind of preface it in a bit because, you know, we were also um, very proactive in, in terms of the discussion that was happening around monuments as early as 2019, prior, maybe even prior to that. So we acquired a, the Kehinde Wiley Rumors of War, which sits outside of the museum, you know, at the entrance of the museum. And, and to me, that was the best mode of really upending the sort of dialogue between whether monuments should stay or whether they should go. You know, my response to that is, why not counter those monuments with new monuments? Why can't we create new narratives in the wake of that and allow those monuments to be seen as relics of history as opposed to living history? And so that, that was the framing um, that this museum uh, created uh, in 2019, ironically in December of, of, of 2019. So then you fast forward to all that then took place in 2020. Um, the Jefferson Davis uh, monument was the first that was torn down by protesters. And then uh, the others quickly followed that were taken down by the city because they were in the, the purview of the city. Uh, the one lone uh, monument that is still on view is that of Robert E. Lee, and that is because it is in the purview of the state, and the state has, uh, has been dealing with a lawsuit um, to have it stay. But that monument uh, and the grounds that surround it became an amazing sight. Uh, it really was transformed into the People's Monument. Uh, people came, they marked upon the base, um, they created a memorial for all those who have been uh, felled to police violence, uh, and it became a gathering space like none other. Uh, I think there were many photographs seen of projections, of performances, whether it was people playing violins or dancers or poetry being spoken, it became a, a space of reclamation. And so I think the city has been poised for new narratives for a long time. The energy around just transforming Monument Avenue has been great. And so given our role in bringing Kehinde Wiley and rumors of war to the city, and beginning um, the, the discussions, beginning new narratives in this city, um, the governor really did want us to take the lead in reimagining Monument Avenue. And does, beyond that, does the museum have any role in what happens with Monument Avenue? Just, you know, what's, what is to be reimagined in terms of art being brought to, to the city, but I think it is a very, I think we are still working through uh, what this logistically uh, looks like. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of negotiations at this point uh, with the state uh, in terms of just if, if monuments or new artwork goes up, how they're maintained, um, whose purview does it now fall within. So there's a lot to be uh, framed out just on a practical level. 
And this is, this is beyond getting the community somehow involved and those voices involved in this discussion. So we're, we're a long ways off from anything happening to this right at this moment. But, but it sounds like you feel like it will be a constructive process, that it'll be engaging to people, even if there's conflict. I don't think anyone imagines that it's just going to be uh, uh, you know, an easy thing to do, do but that, that that process is a good thing. As you just said, the, the role of a monument is for people to memorialize and understand and think about things, and that's exactly what happened with the, the Lee, whatever the cause of it, it happened at that site. Uh, I think it's it's also worth pointing out for for people who haven't been there that that Kahindi Wiley statue literally sits between the museum and the building that houses the Daughters of the American Confederacy. The 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 two institutions are 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 within a stone's throw of each uh, other, and you know uh, have have occupied a space that was previously mostly about the Daughters of American uh, uh, Confederacy, and has now been over time with the growth of the museum very much reimagined as a as a different space hosting this kind of celebration of your 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 show um, in the in the few minutes I have left with you I did want to talk to you a little bit about um, the uh, permanent collection of modern and contemporary art uh, uh, which you are the the curator of and there has been a great deal of, of conversation uh, about representation in museums. And I, I had seen uh, and walked through that uh, collection uh, in January, and I've been uh, very impressed by the way you have achieved what many people say is so hard. Um, there is a, 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 a very thought out, uh, both historical and encyclopedic, but representative depiction of contemporary art it's it's not complete no no <laughs> no museum can really do do that but you know uh, 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 I noticed in the room there's a room with ad Reinhardt by uh, Mark Rothko with two beautiful Norman Lewis paintings in it there is a um, you know a lovely room of, of work from the 60s and early 70s with a Rosalind Draxler painting next to a Robert Rauschenberg and the dates are are within a year or two and the works uh, uh, show something about being together that's about the period, but also about the individual uh, uh, artists. Uh, and I, I uh, you know, I happened to walk through and see that you had hung a um, Barclay Hendricks painting among a group of uh, photorealist uh, paintings. Uh, uh, you know, on the art market, photorealism isn't uh, the sexiest thing these day days. And I had I admired the fact that you were sort of, you know, elevating interest in those paintings by bringing Barclay Hendricks, who's quite the, you know, got a lot of attention the, uh, these days. I, I was wondering, could you just walk me through, I assume this is part of your coming and taking this job and all, how you did all of that? Was this, did you have to acquire works? Were there works just the, there? Was someone already, were you completing someone else's work? How, how did that all come together? Well, I mean, my predecessor was John Ravenel, who was very thoughtful, who really opened the, the conversation wide. So it was um, very easy to step into that realm. We are very fortunate that our 20th century collection is really built on uh, my namesake for my position, which is the Lewis's, Sidney and Francis Lewis. And um, they really collected quite broadly. Uh, so it felt very, um, 
it felt very easy then to walk through and say, who is missing from this conversation? Um, we also have people like Shari Deans, who is next to Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg. Shari Deans is someone who was very much a mentor to them. Uh, Roz Drexler, definitely in conversation with pop artists. Uh, you can't talk about minimalism without talking about someone like Melvin Edwards. Um, and he is uh, hung in the same minimalist room with Saul Lewitt. Um, Jenny C. Jones, who really pulls on both um, the jazz avant-garde and the visual art avant-garde, minimalism, and um, you know, free jazz is certainly there in conversation with them in that room, as is a um, Ruth Kennedy quilt, a woman from G's Ben. So we're trying to really um, be very thoughtful about expanding the conversations. I start, you know, I, I uh, was initially raised Pentecostal, and one of the things that my pastor would always say is you meet people where they are. You meet people where they are. So you, you come into a conversation and you start at that point visually and you expand it outward and it is a both organic uh, expansion but it's also a very natural extension at the same time so I was very fortunate to come into the museum at a time where there was alliance with the governance uh, with the administration and uh, with the field of the staff here at the museum to really begin to shift this conversation, to really begin to open it up. So uh, I find myself in a very fortunate position that uh, this institution is um, very thoughtful and they have thought it out, um, that it is uh, ingrained not only in the strategic plan, but in how this museum moves in general. And it's not just modern and contemporary art, it's American, it's our Native American. Uh, it's within every sector of this institution that people are looking to expand those conversations. I can't think of a better place to end. Thank you so much. This has been a, a real education and I appreciate your spending the time. I have enjoyed every moment. Thank you so much, Mary. Thanks for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To get the latest art coverage, visit artnews.com or subscribe to our magazines, Art News and Art in America.